Blog Talk Radio. Oh, 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 yo, baby. Hello, sir. You're going to co-host? Can you co-host here with me? I'm going to sit on him, even though he bit me. Really, really good 
nice guy to uh, be able to meet, get you know, get in, in touch with, and um, gave sure. us a lot of shout outs in his other panels, which was phenomenal. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, much appreciated there, and we're looking forward to. Um, we'll be back for the next Nightmare Weekend, which is going to be October 11th, 12th, and 13th of October 2024. So, so put it on your calendars now. Clock's ticking, less than a year from now. Yes. We will be there, already confirmed. We have our vendor table is secured. And you know we're going to put in for panels. And we will be putting in for panels. What panels we do is up in the air. But this past time, we did panels on... I think I have a suggestion. Uh, yeah. So this time, we did the, the Creepy Dolls. Mm-hmm. Yep. You, you did that with it's Tiffany. With Tiffany. You did... Uh, Lee and I did Werewolf on Saturday night, which was well attended and yeah, got, yeah. Off, got off to... A, Pretty awesome start. I thought it was a great start to that panel, and then I threw it off the rail. Tried to cram in too much at the end and ran out of time. Shockingly, guys, Chris was the one to go over. I, <laughs> but all in all, um, we we got an email from somebody saying they really, really appreciate it. it. They yeah. really enjoyed it. So. And then um, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Sunday we had our lovely ladies. Zoe and Lee doing. Oh, Marsha. Oh, sorry. Lee's here. Sorry. My brain. Okay, I'm tired, guys. Marsha and Zoe did um, Vampires and Creatures of the Night and um, just did a phenomenal job with that. Okay, I need to to get in on the feed. uh, I'm in on the feed. Uh, Patrick's here. Patrick's okay. I was wondering who was here. Good deal. Yeah. I I was hoping so because we we got to hang out with uh, Patrick a little bit on Saturday. We did. Oh, that was uh, that was a lot of fun, and we got to. It was his idea. Okay, uh, it was his idea for us to do the whole werewolves one in the first place mm-hmm. when we did it at Facebook Live a couple of years. Well, Patrick, ago. it's all your. Oh, oh, oh wait a second! Is it Patrick's birthday? It is. Oh, well, yeah. Yes, I think so. Happy birthday, dude! So, um, and then of course we also got a bunch of signatures for scares because they did their huge. Uh, fundraising this weekend for Scares That Care. You all know that's a big charity of Chris's and ours uh, here at Hogs of Richmond and mine. Um, so we got them several signatures from the ET crowd in a uh, ET um, magazine that came out last year for the anniversary. We got a bunch of other ones in a horror book that I found and donated them. So now they will be going to the uh, Scares That Care silent auction. I'm not sure which one it will be in. I don't know if they'll try to get some more signatures in them. I talked to, which was awesome. They were all like, oh, you're the local ghost tour company? Oh, I got a story for you. That's <laughs> something I always, I always hear about whenever, like, like whenever I interact with uh, celebrities that have, like, like, ghost tours 10 on or something, mm-hmm. for some reason, it just falls out. It does. <laughs> it does. It's like, let me tell you about. <laughs> and I feel bad. He's like, I'm taking up to get your time. Oh, I know. I, I was talking to Judith Hall from yes. uh, Halloween Town, and she just kept going and going, and she it wanted is. to keep talking ghosts, and there were 20 people behind me. I'm like, I want to keep listening to you. I really want to keep talking to you, but you don't want to make the fans mad. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great weekend. They seemed to enjoy it, the fans did. Yeah, yeah the fans yeah. were enjoying her story. Yeah, so I was like, okay, we're good. <laughs> It, it was it was a really good weekend and really excited that they're we're going to be a part of it again next year. Yeah, 
And I got I actually got a ten out of ten from a cos professional cosplayer.
taking holy water, or to make the sign of the cross. In trying to heal, hail, Catherine de Saint Augustin reportedly invokes the wrath of the girl's evil spirits. Those unhappy demons, unable to intimidate her with all their threats, try to, um, try to surprise by changing themselves into angels of light in order to dilute her. In the meantime, the colony's authorities conclude that Hale's, vision, de, uh, Hale's demons had been brought on by her fellow traveler on the ship from France, Daniel Gould, her would-be suitor. They took as proof the fact that the girl said he had started appearing to her. Though nobody could see the specter except Hale, Wool was nonetheless arrested. In Marie L'Incarnation's view, the man was a wizard. Facing the girl's refusal of his advances, Wool would then have decided to achieve his ends through the ruses of his diabolical art. Witchcraft was not the only reason authorities had for arresting Wool. Bishop Laval had traveled on the same ship as Wool and Hale and was convinced that he had converted Wool to Catholicism during the crossing. Yet, once in Canada, it was discovered that Wool was still a Huguenot. In the eyes of the Catholic Church, that made him a relapse, a very grave offense punishable by death in those days of religious intolerance. Yet another reason for fingering Wool was that he was accused of selling liquor to, first, uh, to local First Nations people. This contravened an edict then recently adopted by the governor and rigidly enforced by Bishop Laval, who excommunicated those who indulged in the traffic. Protestants accused of be, uh, Protestant accused of being a relapse, an alcohol travel, trafficker, and a witch, things really did not look good for Daniel Wool. Indeed, Wool was shot on October 7th of 1661 in Quebec City. In the absence of documents related to his trial, the exact reason for his execution is unclear and remains a topic of debate for historians. The usual punishment for witchcraft in New France was banishment, not death. Historian André Vachon said the real reason for his execution was that he sold alcohol to Aboriginal people. At the time, the colony traded with the Algonquin, uh, Huron, and other groups. Others have argued that liquor trafficking was not at that time an offense punishable by death, but religious offenses such as blasphemy and profanity were. According to uh, historian Vincent Gregor, he most, was most likely shot for returning to the Protestant faith after his alleged conversion to Catholicism by Bishop Laval. In any event, he was not buried in a Catholic cemetery, and his exact resting place is unknown. After Wool's death, Hale continued to be plagued by demons for some time. Finally, in 1662, Catherine de Saint-Augustine found a novel way to protect the youth from demon attacks. She had her sewn into a bag. Okay, whatever the rationale, this combined with the allegedly miraculous intercession of the spirit of Jesuit martyr Jean de Brebeuf. Brebeuf. Wow. Uh, anyway, this intercession, intervention, if you will, seemed to have worked. Hale eventually recovered her health after being sewn into a bag. I mean, they showed that in Patriots. This is true. Yeah. So it was a thing of the time. Yep. Your head's out. Anyway, Don't worry. Hale left the convent and led a normal life afterwards, marrying a man named Jane Carrier in 1670 and eventually dying in 1696 at the age of 52, a respectable lifespan for the era. 
The incident involving wool and hail stands out for being relatively uncommon in New France. Three decades later, in neighboring New England, witchcraft hysteria culminated in the Salem witch trials. And, uh, well, we've talked about those before. We know how those turned out. A total of 200 people, most of them women, were put on trial in Salem, and 20 of them were ultimately executed, including one man. One man. One man, yes. He was pressed to death. Yes. Yeah. More weight. Yes, more weight. All the women were, were hung up by their necks until dead. The man was crushed by stones. Yeah. So what happened in Salem never quite reached the same level in New France. Uh, cases in which people were accused of being in league with the devil were few and far between in this region. And there was one other incident involving Montreal innkeeper Anne Lamarck, who was formally accused of witchcraft in 1682. Witnesses testified that she possessed a book of magic and spells. In her defense, Lamarck stated that it was a treaty on herbs and medicine. Protected by high-placed friends, she was acquitted, barely escaping the sentence of banishment. In New France, as in what was kind of common in the colonies, colonies, uh, men greatly outnumbered women, and there was more than one case in which a man was actually accused of putting a curse on a woman who had spurned his marriage proposal. In 1657, René Besnard de Bejoy was convicted of placing a sterility, sterility spell on both the woman who had turned him down and her new husband. The couple was unable to have children, and their marriage was eventually annulled due to perpetual impotence caused by magic. Lord Joy's punishment was banishment from the colony. As for Catherine de St. Augustine, she remained in poor health and was reportedly besieged by demons of all sorts until her death in 1668. After she died, Ragnar published her biography, making public the saintly woman's struggles with demons. However, the reaction to this publication was lukewarm at best. The church was not too keen on these writings. This kind of mysticism had started to go out of fashion, thanks in part to a new kind of rational thinking influenced by philosopher René Descartes and others that was then shaking up in Europe. In 1682, a French royal ordinance laid the groundwork for decriminalizing witchcraft. It mentioned alleged witches and considered them blasphemers or charlatans, but made no reference to their supernatural powers. The last execution of a witch in France took place in 1718. In the whole Western world, the witch hunting craze that had claimed thousands of lives since the early 1500s was starting to recede, even after the Salem Affair in 1692. New France had been relatively spared of it, but not completely as we have just observed. Now that said, while the witchcraft craze did fade, it was not dead. No. So, Patrick made a comment. Uh, wow, a lot Catholic and a witch and all kinds of chaos. What was in the water back then? And why witches when we were so much more fun? I actually do. I know it, was, it wasn't necessarily what was in the water, but it was more what was in the grain. Yeah. Yeah. Air poisoning. Yeah. They did a lot of stuff. They were all drinking water from the St. Lawrence River. That's you. Yeah. That's you. I mean, the river back then would have been fairly clean. Yeah. I mean, they were getting fresh water from the Great Lakes. That mm-hmm. was negligible pollution at the time. So. Yeah. Uh, but the green, the green stuff had a fungus. 
that made people go crazy. And I blame I blame Ergot poisoning on a lot of uh, medieval uh, French literature as well. So, so this is just the only time I'll say that. <laughs> oh, and uh, actually, Alex has a, another question here. Of all the panels you've led, which fairly limited number, to be honest, but I guess if you consider some of the readings that we've done in, like, um, the retirement homes and the libraries, um, which one has been our favorite? And two, what's been your favorite format for facilitation, like webcam or auditorium or strolling the streets of Richmond? I mean, obviously, strolling the streets. Yeah, I mean, our favorite thing yeah, walking around outside, exploring the city on the streets, that is our favorite way of doing it. Um, we know when our jokes land in that case. Yeah. Uh, at this point, we're not really sure if our jokes are landing or not. Yeah. We think we're funny. Yeah, we think we're hilarious. <laughs> and, and, and we're sitting here, we're drinking, we're happy. We got cats. Yeah. Um, um, you know, we might look back in the morning and be like, ah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> we, so we do love doing this. Obviously, if we didn't love doing this, we wouldn't keep doing this. I wouldn't have. 23 scripts started. Yeah. yeah. We're, we, we're not slowing down. So we do love doing the Facebook Live. It, may, it helps us reach a, a larger audience, like people who can't necessarily come to see us. Yes. So and that, it allows me to research outside of Richmond, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess, I mean, doing the panels at a place like, you know, what we've done, like GalaxyCon or stuff like that, it's another way to reach folks that, you know, maybe, A, they might not have even heard of the tours yet, right. which I mean, and, and actually this weekend, I think there's yeah. quite a bit of that. People are walking up to the table. It's like, oh, Richmond has ghost tours. They're like, yeah, we've been around for almost 20 years. And we're just fake. No, like no, normal. You know, like normally people are like, are like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely take one of these tours and like, ah, and never come in. Now this time it was like, oh, these people are coming on a tour. We had, um, we had several people bought tickets at the table for right. the tours they were doing on Friday and Saturday night. Yeah. So. And also just a, a note on the panels is so far, just about every single one we've done has come from Facebook Live shows. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've repurposed them. We've liked them the best of the best at once that we've done parts two to three of. Um, so, you know, it, it allows us to try the material here and then we groom it more mm -hmm. and take it to a panel. So. Yeah. I'm trying, I think um, the one that we did in person back in the spring the amusement the parks, park. yeah. The, yeah people were really engaged with the amusement parks one. That was a lot of fun. Um, authors was it was mildly received. Um, then we uh, let's see. We also had the celebrity. Yeah, haunting. the celebrity hauntings. People really liked that. They yeah. did, yeah. But so. yeah, they they've all been. I mean, we we're fortunate in that they basically let us. They've let us come in and. Talk about what we want to talk about. Right. We submit a panel, they review it, but then they accept it, and we get to go ahead and, and play. And play. And it's been been a lot of fun for us. So. Though I will say, as, as much as I adore co-hosting a panel with you, that was really fun. Um, <laughs> I think it's likely more fun if we get other people like in on it too. It could be, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I've done panels uh, not on this subject, mm -hmm. like on other things, and it's like. I don't know, and then there's somebody else that you're not necessarily in sync with that you're bouncing off. It mm -hmm. it leads to entertaining conversations. Oh yeah, I mean, Hi, our, our, our let's ready to rumble moments. Yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> um, and that picture got taken. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Oh, I I mean I got the picture of that. <laughs> that it, that was as soon as that. It's like the I was one there. I saw, you were in the picture. 
No, there was that one. Uh-huh. But then, yeah, somebody else when I was putting something back in the computer bag. But then the one where the let's get ready to rumble. Yeah. I, I, somebody, so here's the background. So, uh, on the panel I was on, there was one of the panelists who said the Poe Museum was not haunted. Yeah. I had opinions about that. <laughs> I'm curious, what did Chris Sumner say about that? It's absolutely no. not haunted. There are no ghosts. Oh, no, I mean, like, like does it... Does Afterwards, it, when we told him about yeah. that, he, he, he waffled on it, which is fine. I mean, he doesn't want to... He doesn't want to talk about no, it. Yeah, but, like, I get that. That's fine. I respect that totally. Um, I'm just... Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's a hilarious picture. We posted it on our Facebook page uh, with the pictures from this weekend, and you literally can see me with the microphone, like... And the other guy's looking at me, and poor Steve Bills is in between of us, like... Honey, you said the wrong thing to that redhead. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? You had two of the some of the most underrepresented, upper underrepresented, into like what do you, I forget exactly. But basically, two redheaded women were on the panel. Mm-hmm. It's like so. He he was having the time. With you her. have to walk carefully with the redhead. <laughs> uh, Patrick just said that leading the panel all the least self on Norse folklore and mythology. I would uh, argue that. Now here's the deal. Uh, I keep telling them. Oh, I've been writing a uh, a a script on uh, ghosts in Icelandic sagas, and I, I am. For it. I yeah no. I want to make sure I get all of them. Because, like, they're, they're there, it's just they're not a lot, and I don't want to feel drowger. I want to actually, like, have ghosts as opposed to drowger. Mm-hmm. They're different. Um, and if I have to throw drowger, and I will, but ghosts are, like, drowger are, that, that's something, that, that's a subject that I could just sit there and talk for an hour. <laughs> but, <laughs> anyway, we're tangent.
And uh, there was also witchcraft trials here in Virginia, as we mentioned in previous um, Facebook lives as well. Those lasted between 1626 and 1730. There were no executions, though. Uh, now, of course, in Canada, uh, people per- pretending to practice witchcraft was illegal until 2018. What? Yeah. 2018. You mean they didn't bother to take that off the book? No. I feel like it would be so important. Yeah, it would, but Anyway, so this was under Section 365 of the Criminal Code of Canada. And the section read, pretending to practice witchcraft, etc. Everyone who fraudulently, A, pretends to exercise or to use any kind of witchcraft, sorcery, enhancement, or conjuration, B, undertakes for consideration or to tell fortunes, or C, pretends from his skill in or knowledge of an occult or crafty science to discover where or in what manner anything that is supposed to have been stolen or lost may be found is guilty of an offense punishable on summary confection. This is specific. That last one specifically, that last one is weird. Well, that last one was mostly used to actually um, get rid of fraudulent claims of occult powers. So the seances and all of that sort of thing. That okay, uh, that's fine. Look, that's okay. <laughs> but at the same time, it just seems so specific. It is. I thought that like, they they lost their wallet and they go to a witch and the witch gets arrested. Yes, that's what I heard. Yeah, <laughs> literally what it was. Okay, so in that case, it's not a situation with you know let 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 stop people preying on individuals who are grieving. Yeah. No, it, it, not just, it literally boils down to that, but they were trying to protect you from fraud and protect the naive and the desperate. Yeah. That's not what the law says. No. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, but, again, like most witchcraft laws, it was used to prosecute the vulnerable or marginalized women. Mm-hmm. So, um, now, it wasn't commonly used in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, the law against pretending to practice witchcraft remained in effect until 2018, as I said. So, she was charged, Maggie Pollock was charged under the law in 1919. It was the weirdest case that had come before the Ontario Codes in many years. Margaret Pollock more often was referred to as Maggie or Miss Pollock. She was a woman born in Huron County in May 11th of 1879. She was of Irish descent, and she lived and worked on her brother's farm as a housekeeper. Maggie claimed to be possessed with a peculiar occult gift that she used on several occasions to help neighbors locate lost or stolen items and property. Following a particular court case, Maggie's gift would earn her sudden celebrity not only in Huron County, but across the country. Now, from a young age, Maggie knew she had special gifts. At 16, she realized she had an ability to hear and see things that others could not. While visiting a friend's house in Boston, Maggie realized that she had seen the house and an elderly woman who lived there before. Around the turn of the century, Maggie experienced visions of two strange machines. The first Maggie thought of was a chariot of angels at first glance, but then she noticed the machine had wheels. 
It shocked Maggie when she saw the machine in the sky land right beside her, and she saw regular people disembark from it. She saw the second strange machine when she was driving down the road and turned around to see a machine that ran like a train but without a track behind her. The vision puzzled Maggie. It wasn't until many years later that Maggie realized she had seen an airplane and a car many years before the modern version of either was invented. While some might label Maggie's gift as relating to the occult, Maggie claimed her abilities were completely natural, without witchcraft or trickery involved. When Maggie's neighbors came to her for help, Maggie never guaranteed results, but rather promised to do the best that she could to help them. When the question about the things she saw, Maggie claimed she had no powers of her own, but her visions and insights were a God-given gift that she felt compared to share when they came to her. In June 30th of 1919, Maggie was brought to her on County Gall after she was accused of killing fortunes, which is illegal under the Section 365 of the Canadian Criminal Code. In Goddard, a farmer had testified that he had given Maggie 50 cents for a seance. He did this hoping to locate oats and grain which somebody had stolen from him. It wasn't revealed in court whether Maggie's premonition resulted in recovering the oats and grain, but she said she saw a vision of the sea and was able to describe Mr. Godridge's horse. Yeah, was able to describe his horse. Now, um, when she appeared before Godridge, Judge Henry Dickinson and the court decided that she did unlawfully pretend from her skill and knowledge in an occult and crafty science to discover when and if the manner certain goods, chattels, to wit, certain grains and oats, supposed to have been stolen from one John Linhart. <laughs> Excuse me. You get there? Yep. If you need me to. I'm good. Okay. On October 13th of 1920, Maggie's case was appealed to uh, Good Hall, one of the oldest and most distinguished legal associations in the country, by her counsel, Mr. C. Garrow. Uh, Good upheld Judge Dixon's conviction. According to the contem- contemporary account of Clinton News Records, the judge admonished her that the practice must cease and has bound her over in bonds at $200 from herself and from her brother to refrain from the pretensions of the occult power and practicing the occult science. The court gave Maggie permission to offer her opinion about lost items, but not to claim that she had any special powers. Members of the local community continued to support Maggie during her conviction and appeal, and her supporters were upset with her treatment in the legal system. The Toronto Saturday Night chastised the judges and those involved with the case for harrying a poor old woman. A neighbor, Mrs. Sinclair, also testified at Osgood Hall to corroborate the effectiveness of Maggie's gift. She stated Maggie had successfully helped her find a lost diamond ring. Maggie had claimed to do this by speaking with Sinclair's deceased mother and told Mrs. Sinclair that she had thrown the ring out with some dust. Maggie added that Mrs. Sinclair would find the ring when the snow melted. Despite this advice, Mrs. Sinclair and her husband decided to melt the snow. When this did not work, she sent a letter to Maggie detailing what she had done and that she had not found the ring. Maggie replied to Mrs. Sinclair, you need to be patient. Sure enough, the snow thawed weeks later and the ring was there. 
Considering the continued public fascination of, with which Scratch and Vehicle is no surprise that Maggie's legal, legal battle gained widespread recognition in 1920. It was notable that some older women from Huron County could perform such miracles, while others are shocked that she could be accused of something as archaic as witchcraft. The Toronto Daily Star questioned the wisdom of the verdict. There's a fairly widespread belief in the occult. It is growing. Why not cope with this sort of thing more intelligently than by merely putting a ban of the law upon it? The same article also suggested that rather than legal prosecution, a public test to determine the validity of Maggie's gifts would be the superior solution. Her powers could simply be disproved are verified to harmlessly help with more cases of missing valuables. Many supporters uh, of Maggie did not, not doubt her abilities. She received many visitors and letters from people as far away from Florida, Texas, Missouri, Nebraska, California, and Vancouver. Her skills were also allegedly sought after on the other side of the law. Police asked her to locate missing bodies of drowned persons several times including a young boy who had drowned in Wingham and a man who had fallen through the ice in New Hampshire. The Seaforth News reported that Maggie had also paid a visit, uh, was also paid a visit by High Constable A.J. Wharton of London to discuss the escape of two murderers from London Jail in 1927. Maggie passed away in August of 1931 in her 70th year. The Seaforth News said of her she has Honor in her country, but because her neighbors have always had the utmost faith in her and can relate the scores of interesting stories. She was fondly remembered as a well-known, highly respected resident of Morris Township. Despite the verdict of witchcraft's case, Maggie was able to continue to help others with her gifts as she wanted. Whether those gifts were real is still up for debate, but one thing is for certain, she was one magical woman one way or another. <laughs> Alex asked if we did an episode on UFOs, and I we did. We did the UFOs, the Men in Black. Yeah. Ah, there it is. Um, okay. Yes. July nineteenth, twenty twenty one. UFOs, aliens, and men. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. I can't right. breathe anymore, so it is your turn. Really? I mean, you, you, I, you sound great. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like my head should be chopped off. No, we're not going there. Well, Am I trying to all out, though? <laughs> And, uh, oh, Patrick also noted, which I hadn't thought of this before, and it's a really good point, is that back in the day, being able to describe a horse should have been, like, the equivalent of, like, getting a license plate off a car today. Sure. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it, yeah. Sure. Facts. But anyway, so one more tale for you this evening. Uh, and, again, we're actually coming a little more modern still. Now, this story um, starts with somebody speaking from anonymity. So maybe a little bit of shaky ground to start with, but we'll see where it goes. We're going back to 1944, when let's just say that the world was a little distracted at the time. A man, speaking again, condition of anonymity, 
in northern British Columbia, told an interviewer about a terrifying childhood incident of being tortured and hunted by members of his own community. The boy was just eight years old when, after the sudden death of his infant brother, a local woman, a Mrs. Peel, accused him of witchcraft. What followed was a days-long ordeal of torture and interrogation, including by members of his own immediate family. Only a last-minute escape into the woods saved his life. He said, they got the whole crowd looking for me, but they never found me. He was describing his breathless moments of searchers coming within breathing distance of his hiding place. And the informant, it was uh, noted by the interviewer, actually still bears the scars of the torture that he suffered. Now, the word witch hunt, again, typically conjures images, again, of Salem, but this uh, really kind of shocking, uh, shocking episode from the very modern era um, was, uh, you know, really kind of you know, very shocking for many people, particularly those um, in the modern era who uh, were exposed to this and realized what was happening, not from some dusty history books, but really just in this, you know, very modern day. Now, the account uh, was collected by Amer an American anthropologist named John Pongeman, who in 1947, excuse me, penned what is still one of the only written accounts of an outbreak of so-called witch killings in the interior regions of northern British Columbia and the Yukon Territory. The wartime construction of the Alaska Highway would have dramatic ramifications for dozens of indigenous communities that had previously been relatively isolated from a settler society. It was amid this upheaval that the Bronx-born Hongman became one of the first civilians to board a U.S. Army-operated bus moving north along the new road. He had come to document some of the continent's last examples of an autonomous indigenous life before they disappeared in the cultural breakdown of the new highway. North of the Peace River, the Indian still lived largely as did his forefathers, wrote Hongaman of his travels. The 30-year-old academic would spend much of the next two years with communities first comprising the Costa First Nation, an inland uh, people whose traditional territory ranges from lower post British Columbia to the Ross River over in the Yukon. And although Hongman freely, freely used words like primitive to refer to his Costa hosts, he was unique among the region's white newcomers in the belief that indigenous peoples should generally be left to run their own affairs. So, kind of two sides of one, you know, the same coin here. A little bit of good, a little bit of uh, not so good. It, it is what it is. We are talking about a gentleman that lived over 70 years ago and was writing 70 years ago. And, yeah, the fact that he was progressive enough to realize that these people still should have the right to basically live as they wish is kind of saying something for the era. Anyway. Notably, Ungwin's writings would condemn one of the most central pieces of Canadian Indian policy, in quotes, at that time, the residential school system. He wrote, the family must not be broken up by taking children from their parents and sending them to live at school, adding, the use of native language must not be discouraged. Unfortunately, Canada didn't listen, and the lower post-residential school was opened soon after Hongman's return to New York, which, of course, basically, much like the native schools that we had down in Williamsburg, took these 
children from the native tribes, brought them to these schools where they would live and basically be anglicized. Yeah. So kind of a uh, you know, little dark part of history as we know it. Not allowing them to have any communication with family or be able to do any of the things that's part of their culture. Yeah. So as Hahnemann filled notebooks with details on Kafka hunting practices and marriage rights, he began to notice that he was moving among communities that seemed to harbor a terrible and often unspeakable secret. One man, Sam Bob, told of family members who had fled the area to save the lives of cousins accused of witchcraft. Bill Carlick, a member of the neighboring Halton, told of encountering a screaming bound child who had been left to die on a lake beach one of a series of women and children who had apparently been left to that fate. And of course, there was the unnamed survivor that Hong Meng quoted at length. Now about 30 years old, the man was missing one of his ears due to it having been torn off and burned. Instead, academic prose, Hong Meng outlines the usual pattern by which the Costa community would descend into accusations and often counter accusations of witchcraft. After a community member died of a sudden illness, Generally, some child or youth was fixed upon as the guilty party. As at Salem and countless witch trials held throughout early modern Europe, accused witches often tried to redirect suspicion at somebody else. A mature person often sought to escape the charge of bewitchment by leveling suspicion on a child. Wow. That's just messed up. Yeah. From there, the witch could admit guilt and face the likely prospect of execution, or they could maintain their innocence, prompting days of torture until they confessed. Hungerman wrote, the most commonest means of torture seems to have been tying up the suspected individual, sometimes hanging them up by the heels and starving them. A series of Royal Canadian Mounted Police dispatches from the early 1920s is one of the only official acknowledgments that the region had been visited by a rash of so-called witch killings. This was not due to any lack of effort on the part of terrified Kafka peoples to inform the outside world, but as sources told Hongeman, government agents initially didn't believe them or they just simply didn't. Only in 1924 did the Royal Canadian Mounted Police finally dispatch a three-member expedition led by veteran Mountie Theodore Sandys Wunsch into the Kafka regions to investigate. It was no easy feat. Setting out from Vancouver, the officers first had to take a steamship up to Alaska, a river barge to Telegraph Creek, and then weeks of canoeing and hiking until they reached what is now Lower Post. After some questioning, the members were led to the badly decomposed remains of a young boy named at, or identified as Atoll, who the, first previous, who the previous spring had apparently been tied up naked in the woods and left to die of exposure. The Mounties charged five locals with the boy's murder, chief among them a woman named Eddie Lute. A subsequent trial held in Prince Rupert would include the Crown's claim that the meaning of human beings, including children, has been commonly practiced amongst the natives in the northern portion of this province. Media accounts from the time were brazen about declaring that these actions were typical of savage peoples. Framing the whole story is a swashbuckling triumph of red-surged authority. Yeah. But 
to that Indians and Eskimos practices frowned on by civilization are considered proper, read an account in the March 1926 edition of Popular Mechanics. Natives still under spell of witches, read a 1932 feature on the murder syndicated, murder syndicated in newspapers across Canada and the United States. But the Costa had no history of executing witches, nor had they, nor had any of the indigenous communities surrounding them. In their culture, they believed in the existence of black magic, but traditionally people suspected of sorcery were feared by the rest of the society's members, but they were not usually put to death or otherwise punished. What changed is that the Costa peoples of the earliest 20th century had just been blindsided by a miniature apocalypse. The Costa had occupied the land around the Laird River for so long that their oral history includes descriptions of woolly mammoths. In the sudden mid-19th century arrival of fur traders, Christian missionaries, and the 1898 Klondike Gold Rush brought a wave of new diseases into the region to which the isolated Costa were particularly vulnerable. Elders told Hongaman of a die-off that killed hundreds and utterly demolished families and community structures. And it was still happening. In the winter just before Hongaman's arrival into Costa territory, indigenous communities along the Alaska Highway were losing people to undiagnosed disease at rates of as much as 10% per year. When Hongaman passed through Fort Nielsen, British Columbia, he asked the local people to list all their relatives who had died in the previous 20 years. Almost half of the population has died since 1920, Hongaman wrote in a letter to the Journal of the American Medical Association. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Hongman did not find that Costa people were eager to discuss the subject of witch killings. Elders dismissed Hongman's questions with what he described as impatience. They rather consi- consistently maintained that it was white people who constantly spoke of witches, he wrote. Surviving members of the family of Eddie Lute refused his request for an interview. If Costa people had been seized by hysteria of witches among them, they had not acted all that differently from any number of other peoples whose way of life had been shattered by external forces. When the Black Death killed more than 30% of Europe in the 1300s, it yielded spontaneous movements of people believing that they could tame God's wrath through public displays of self-abuse. Many public uh, plague-stricken communities simply pointed the finger at their Jewish neighbors in a series of devastating pogroms. Three centuries later, a sudden drop in global temperatures led to crop failures and famines across Renaissance Europe. In a desperate search for scapegoats, communities around what is now Germany would orchestrate as many as 60,000 witch burnings, the last coming in 1782. They wrote of these people as if they were so savage and so different, but the fact of the matter is they just reacted exactly the same way as so many other people before them that had suffered through great calamity. So, but that is our final story for this evening. Uh, hope that uh, it wasn't too off the rails considering our utter lack of preparation for tonight. But yeah. Uh, and lack of focus. And lack of focus and... Uh, I'll say they can't breathe. Yep. But let's see. Yeah, the kitties are wiped out. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, being a little dust ball. There was a heck of a movie over there today. 
the ocean just so I don't have to think about doing anything. That's sleep and read a book. She she wants a bunch of sea days on a cruise ship really where all she has to do is sleep, feed herself, and sit in the lounge chair by a pool. With a book. It's very cheap of it still. It is. I've never been on a cruise. Nor do I plan to. They're fun. We like them. Well, there's that whole boat that went down in the North Sea. Yeah. I mean, they're not the ocean. You're coming on the fuck girl. My day is up. That it's the tw- uh, Saturday the 21st. I'm yours. Oh. But, so, and that's... Yes, read the notes. You'll see what stories were. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We're um, also scheduling on air. That, on is, air. Uh, that is the content. You, you, get to, you get to hear how the sausage is made. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we talked for an hour. I thought that was my Facebook with Kitten Show, yeah, which I have not done at all this month because... Why would yeah. you? You've hardly been cooking this month. I know you haven't. I but, haven't been cooking. But, I noticed. Yeah. But anyways... Um, and, and, that's why I'm here. And I'm, I'm, that's, that's like literally what I do. <laughs> and Patrick knows I still have uh, if you wanted... Oh, Haunted Houses. Mm. Um, he still... Needs to go and check out his uh, friends. His friends up at uh, Red Vane. Red Vane's always great. Yep, very very did good. We did. Well, they're not year round. Uh, Brightmare. I have their card in my pocket. Um, they're out in Chesapeake. They they don't go necessarily exactly year round, but they have um, events that are outside of October that I'm really excited about. So they go into, uh, they go September, November, or September, October, and I believe they go into November, and they also have a Christmas one and a Valentine's Day one. And one in March, too. And one in March, yeah. And I was like, ooh, I might be able to do a haunted house because it's not October. I know, because I haven't, I was telling the lady who did it, I've not done any haunted attractions in, like, 10 years outside of Ashland Berry Farm when one of my partners convinced me to go to Ashland Berry Farm and, uh, Get work, not you guys. Yeah, yeah. the other work. Right. <laughs> so, so now we know what Patrick's doing. He's a good judge. His daddy's going to be looking to do trick or treating, handing the candy, the candy out, and uh, yeah, and of course planning for next year's Halloween mm-hmm. as you do. But so that's I already have my idea. Yeah, well, first I got to build for Christmas. And and love to hear you. Well, what are the plans for the little one, Alex? Yeah, what's the little one going to be dressed as? Oh, we must know that. We yes. need to see voters. We'll, we'll have to see that. Or better yet, bring the little one trick-or-treating here. Yes, you can bring, mm-hmm. them, bring them trick-or-treating in the... I've got uh, toys. In the, the, yes, in the, the Churchill neighborhood, beautiful neighborhood trick-or-treating. Churchill neighborhood, it doesn't go as out as um, Hanover Avenue does, but they go out of it. We, I was actually a little surprised. We drove down Hanover... Thursday? Well, Thursday night, yes, coming back from the branch. I was yeah. with Oh, yeah, you were with us. Yeah, because we were taking you home. Yeah, I was surprised that there weren't more decorations out, to be honest. Yeah. But Don't worry, they're putting them up. My boss was out there. He's, he's going to be an entomologist. Gorgeous. <laughs> Beautiful. Love it. <laughs> oh, that's a thing of beauty. I miss these. I know I've been and stuff and working things, but I miss these. <laughs> <laughs> well... This was a three-week break because we are in, our, are in October, and you can see how well that paid off for us because we still were hopefully unprepared. So 
woefully unprepared and tired. And but that said, we will be back. November sixth. It is our fault because we were like, oh yeah, Nightmare Weekend. Let's do That's all the of one that. After it. Let's do all of that. But I am less tired, or I am more tired than I was after. <laughs> uh, God, BC Family Weekend. Yeah. And I did tours every night. Yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so we will see you again November 6th. It is going to be Haunted Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks after that, on the 20th, it will be Haunted Shopping. Because Black Friday is coming up to Haunted Shopping. I Interesting. Had to. I had to. I didn't know that you could. <laughs> I, I haven't read the script yet, so I'm curious. I'm still working on that one. Oh, okay. Oh, but, you need to do Oklahoma. But Oklahoma. That's what I hung. Yep, yep. Yeah, I did. See? That will be the limit of the singing that I will subject the internet. Y'all got your brain cell, and Chris and I share that one. <laughs> you don't want uh, to hear me sing right now, and I can't breathe. Mm. Thank you for letting us be a part of your birthday, Patrick. Happy birthday, Patrick. Yes, happy birthday. Tear it up. Go crazy. <laughs> but not too crazy, because... We gotta see you at Galaxy. Yeah, we we don't want to hear that you had to get bailed out or something like that. Mm-hmm. Don't call us if you need to. <laughs> we are not awake. the Ghostbusters. Do not call us. We will not be awake. <laughs> all right. With that, we are going to bid you all good night. I'm going to disturb Yuna trying to get out of this chair. Her face that she's giving is beautiful. Is that one? Mom? Why do I ask Lee to hit the finish button on this? Oh, how do I? It's right in the lower corner closest to the little tiny button. There we go. Uh Aha.